Hey, welcome to another episode of Pat and the Fat Man, where we like to talk about movies, sports, and whatever else we feel like. I'm Pat. I'm the Fat Man. Coming to you not live, although we do do some live shows now on the sports balling, but this one's not live. We're going to talking about some Red Dawn, Red Drawn, Red Donner, Red... I don't remember what else I came up with. Or as like I like to call it, Pat's best impression of Sam the Eagle. Yeah, that's solid. I like that. <laughs> A salute to all nations, but mostly America. But mostly America. <laughs> A tribute to all nations, but mostly America. It's a splendid three-hour finale. You got a minute and a half. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. <laughs> the camera, what does he actually say? Oh, it's been so long. You've been in that park sooner than I have. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> or more recently than I have. Oh, God bless America. I could butcher my own language and it all makes sense. You know, it's funny. On YouTube, there's a, uh, like, when you choose what language it displays at, English has, like, five options. And one of them is English-American. I mean, okay, English American, English British. What 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 else is there? I think there's Australian, Southern. English Southern. <laughs> yeah, Southern should definitely be an option. <laughs> All right, so we're talking about the Red Dawns. Last we left our heroes, they had just picked up a new member of the group, and that was an adult. Yeah, an adult, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Tanner. Andrew Tanner, who had crash landed and had been. Um, Picked up by one of our heroines. And I've forgotten everybody's name again. Yeah, Aardvark, Danny, Daryl, Robert, <laughs> Erica, played by Leah Thompson, Jed, Patrick Swayze, Tony, played by Jennifer Grey, and Matt, played by Charlie Sheen. And I've mentioned those actors and characters together specifically because those are the headliners and nobody cares who played the other characters. <laughs> Although both the um, guy in charge of the Russians and the guy in charge of the Guatemalans, they're actors as well, at least semi-well-known. Oh, I've never heard. The Russian guy, he's been in a lot of stuff. Really? I don't know. I've seen him. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen him in more than Red Dawn. Okay, so last we left them, we covered the fire scene where he's talking about what happened, basically. And there's just a ridiculous amount of... I believe, button pressing going on for that, like you do. You say that, but given the current (laughs) events of what's happening in the world, you almost think, like, damn, could it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, considering we all thought this would be over a long time ago, and the Russia-Ukraine thing is still somehow happening. We're doing this recording while enjoying a nice cold adult beverage. What kind of a cold adult beverage? A Canadian one. Nice. Commie bastard. <laughs> they're not communists, they're just polite. Sure they're not. They're still going through all of it, you know, talking about how the lines are being drawn, this, that, and the other thing, how the British are sitting this one out, they figured two world wars in one century was more than enough, and that the only people on their side were uh, 500 million uh, screaming Chinamen. Yeah. And one of the kids goes, well, I thought there were a billion and he goes, there was, and he throws whiskey into the fire, and it's a bit... <laughs> yeah. You know, basically implying that, you know, the Chinese got nuked to shit. And I mean, if we really want to think about it, like, the Chinese and the Russians have never really gotten along, the Soviets, I should say. Well, all of Asia doesn't get along. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true, but the, the <laughs> Chinese 
communist and the Soviet communists have never gotten along. No, not even with the Vietnamese ones either. That's the thing about communism is like it's as Marx wrote it, it was supposed to be this big kind of one world, one group, you know, the workers rise everywhere and take over and, and it's, you know, one big thing. And what happened is you had these individual communist revolutions in these countries and they all decided how communism should be. And they were all different. I mean, not, they were all, you know, brutal dictatorships. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Again, this just goes back to the whole thing. Like people like, are like, oh, these communists, like they weren't really communists. <laughs> they were dictatorships disguised with different types of like, you know, flavorings essentially. <laughs> But they were all dictatorships. <laughs> they were not pure communists, but right. they were real communists. Because in the real world, that's what happens when communists take over, is they turn into a dictatorship. So I've never seen it go the other way. So as far as I'm concerned, they're real communists. <laughs> they, they just might not be. They're not pure Marxist right. communists. That was always kind of an interesting concept. It was sort of the detente concept, which was the United States playing Russia and China off against each other because even though they were both communists, they were not, they were still at each other's throats and they shared a pretty decent border or effectively shared a, a decent border because of China's and both Chinese and the uh, Soviet Union's reach. And it was actually something Nixon did really well. A lot of people had problems with Nixon for a lot of reasons, <laughs> but his ability as a foreign policymaker was actually pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, and that was one of the things he did well was play the Russians and the Chinese off against each other. Well, yeah, that's what any good villain does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he knows their language. He knows how to get them to fight each other. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fairly believable c scenario with the Soviets, you know, just outright destroying or nuking China well, effectively. Most Asian countries, their people are generally, is it racist if they hate everybody or is it just like xenophobes? What's, what's the correct word here? I, you know, I don't know anymore because like, especially in America, because our version of racism is so tolerant. Like, <laughs> and, and I know that's insane to, to like, it, it sounds crazy, but most of the racism you find, in the U.S. or in, like, Europe or whatever, it's very much based on, like, skin color. Right. Whereas the further you go back in history, the more broad everybody's racism becomes. Unless you're not exactly specifically that person from that part of the world. <laughs> you're not from my town? Then you're terrible and I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> like sports fans. <laughs> you speak my language, you look like me, you do the same thing as I do, you eat the same food, but you have a slightly altered dialect because you're from one valley over and I hate you and you should die. <laughs> that's, right. that's kind of the... The racism that's still kind of running rampant in most of Asia. <laughs> the reason I, I keep bringing it back to that is just the understanding that that was going to happen no matter what. Because, like, even if, the you know, the Russians didn't care about the Chinese, the Chinese would have cared about the Russians. Yeah. It's funny. I was like that, like, you talk about America being a melting pot, right? Mm -hmm. And it is. And that's one of, the, like, the big reasons is like these people from a variety of cultures come over that have, you know, historically hated each other for hundreds, possibly thousands of years. And they come to the U.S. and they're both Asian. Right. Two people from very distinct cultures, different languages, 
maybe have, you know, their entire family history have hated one another. And in America, they're the same class of folk. <laughs> that and they're forced to get along because the laws dictate that they have to get along, you know? Yeah, so them, uh... The Soviets nuking the uh, the Chinese is actually not a, I believe, you know, there's a lot of I believe button pressing that goes on in that conversation over the fire. Mostly, but just like, yeah, how they, they ended up drawing the lines and how they ended up getting into the country and right and knocking out the particular points of, uh, yeah, the lack of tactical nuclear strikes. Right. So the kids asked if he had a, a family and he goes, yeah, he has a wife and a daughter and he doesn't know where they are. They got caught behind the lines in Texas. He'd like to think that they're still alive, but he hears terrible things that they do to civilians. We have that little chilling moment. We got told the lines, but then pulled back in. Yes, it's still a war, and terrible things are happening, and it's all the fault of the communists. It flips to a scene in the dark of the lieutenant colonel being woken up by... I think it's Daryl. Daryl! <laughs> He's like, you know, Colonel, come on, get up. We're going to go hit this armored column, you know, uh, down the road. Uh, early bird gets the worm. <laughs> and so the Colonel turns on his light, sits up, and realizes there's like a kind of like a boutonniere. It's like a little flower boutonniere that was slipped into his flight suit in the middle of the night, which isn't awkward at all. <laughs> right. So you're like, uh, huh. You know, and there's kind of this feeling that. Probably from Erica, just because they're the only two that he met and interacted with. Because he hasn't really interacted with Tony at all, so it always right. kind of points at Erica, and it's a little awkward. So, and it's also interesting because they're immediately bringing him into like their operations, right? Right. So we've seen them, them transition from this ragtag group of survivalists into now they're a ragtag group of uh, freedom fighters, or at least just saboteurs, right? And you know they kind of spend an evening with him and. You know, maybe this is later on, but maybe this is literally the next day. They're like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> you're in with the group. Let's go. You know, you're another you're another one of the team. We talked a little bit about Jed's leadership and it not being really challenged by the colonel. He just kind of pointing out the fact that he's a colonel, but he doesn't really try. You don't see this sort of, well, I'm in charge now thing going on. And this is sort of Jed saying, well, we had a thing and so we're still going to do it. <laughs> Right. (laughs) This doesn't change anything. We're still fighting for our home. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I mean, at this point, because of where he is, and and by he, I mean the the lieutenant colonel and the situation, he's not going to tell them, okay, you're all going to follow me and back over over the line. He's like, these kids are in this fight no matter what. And at this point, we could use everybody we can. You know, so yeah, if we can make a little foothold here, do a little damage, then maybe some good will come out of it. He doesn't come out and say it. In fact, he kind of tries to wake these kids up after after this next scene about, you know, what they're really doing and whatnot. Yeah. That's the logical conclusion I draw from it. We flip to the next scene where they're just right in the middle of full combat, you know, shooting at troop carriers, APCs, you know, trucks, pulling soldiers, light tanks, things like that. And they're just, you know, gunning them down with, you know, AK-47s and throwing grenades and whatnot. Erica's got like a, a machine gun. <laughs> At one point, Jed tells the Lieutenant Colonel, watch those claymores in the trees. Cause the, the Russians had uh, jumped to the other side of the road of uh, this road that the armored column was driving down. And he, you know, you see jet pull plunger trees come flying everywhere, bombs and whatnot. Matt takes out a truck with an RPG. You see the aftermath. 
you know, things just blowing up and all the soldiers, all the Russian soldiers are dead. And Jed looks to uh, the Lieutenant Colonel and goes, not bad for a bunch of kids, huh? And uh, Lieutenant Colonel goes, your mom would be real proud. That exchange to me strikes me as kind of the most important because you you have this sort of, like the words, you know, your mom is maybe true, right? Like they're freedom fighting, they're taking out the Russians. But the way Jed says it, it's not in the sort of congratulatory way. It's sort of deadpan. It's kind of just like, I'm not agreeing that this is a good thing or disagreeing. Well, more it's like he's turning to the colonel and saying, hey, you know, we're doing good, aren't we? You know, we're pretty darn good, aren't we? You know, like trying to show him that, you know, hey, we didn't have training like you. And here we are, you know, shooting these guys up. <laughs> yeah. That's more of it, you know, like saying, see, you know, we can we can fight. Right. We're not just kids. Don't look at us as kids. We can fight. Yeah. And the colonel kind of saying, yeah, but is this really the thing you should be doing? And the colonel doesn't really know the backstories, right? He doesn't know what they've been through necessarily. He doesn't know what they've seen. Right. He just knows there's a kids. And from his perspective, he's like, you know, kids shouldn't be doing this, right? He's still a soldier. He's still part of a, a standing army. Probably back home in the freedom area, they're not conscripting kids or, or maybe this young, maybe like Jed, but nobody, you know, as young as, and, and probably not the girls, right? Because this was before the time that women were in the military or at least in combat, right? Or a major factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. They were in the military, but they weren't combat. This probably all hits Jed as sort of like, what I've seen objectively is probably good because bad guys, <laughs> <laughs> but you kids doing it, I don't know how much I can get behind that. That's the feel of that phrase he utters, you know, your mom would be proud. It is sort of like a Jed going, you know, this is what we're doing. Like, isn't this a good thing? And the Colonel going, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, the more I get, I took from it, it's more like he's looking for, look how good I am to the Colonel. And the colonel's kind of like, yeah, don't toot your own, your own horn that much, kid. All right. <laughs> you, you think you're doing real. You think this is the real war? It's not. <laughs> and he says so much as much, you know, in this next scene when they're all in the campfire around him. And he goes, you think you're tough uh, for eating beans every day? You know, there's a, a half a million scarecrows in Denver that would give anything for one mouthful of what you got. <laughs> And he's just trying to tell him, go, look, this ain't the real war. You're you got a small poured part of it. And it's not even the worst part because they've done all these things. You know, they feel like they're they're acting like they're fighting a real war. And in a sense, they are. It's just it's not the, the hardest part of the war. Right. In any given war scenario, there's always people suffering besides those folks on the front. Like, don't get me wrong. The folks on the front have by far the worst of it. Mm -hmm. They're kind of in a different even a different mindset. But you start looking at, quote unquote, the folks back home, right? Any modern military has like six to eight people that support it. The further you go back in history, the smaller that number gets. But there's always some number of people, quote unquote, at home who are supporting the guys in the field and they all feel the pinch. And depending on how things are going, that pinch can be pretty hard. And he mentions in this, I mean, he said the half million scarecrows in Denver, they were under siege for three months living off rats, sawdust, and sometimes even each other. Yeah, that's the reality of siege warfare, right? Right. Like, that's the terrible, terrible things that happens. Although, I don't, to be honest, I'm not really sure how a siege plays out in a modern... I mean, it happens, but then again, I, it's it's very strange in comparison to, like, old-school sieges. <laughs> right, because, like, you know, in, in old-school sieges, you can't airdrop food and whatnot. <laughs> 
So unless you have a really good air defense to prevent that from happening, it's hard to stop from like food and things getting into an area. Right. It just seems like they move a lot faster than older sieges used to move. Right. You know, you might encircle or get around a, a city, but a lot of times it's always trying to forward motion into the city to capture it. Modern siege warfare, like, yeah, I get it. There is the possibility of starvation and stuff for folks who are involved in it. But in an active war zone, it doesn't strike me as being as prolonged as all that. And in fact, that would be the only thing that would explain the stabilization of the lines is if you're trying to just hold siege to certain cities. Otherwise, you just blow it over and then move on, you know? Yep. Because that's what's holding you up is trying to take someplace intact. <laughs> yeah, you're trying to destroy something so you don't have to... Uh, Rebuild. Right. Some piece of the infrastructure. You want to kill the people without killing the city so that way you can take the infrastructure that's already there and make it your own. Which was the interesting thing about how they talked about using tactical nukes because the neutron bomb had been developed to do just that. It was something that killed people, not stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was perfect for something like trying to run through and take over a, a city that you wanted to keep intact. The only problem was, of course, the radiation, but, you know. Small things. <laughs> yeah, we're already pushing the I believe button on them using tactical nukes in the first place, so. Right. <laughs> yeah, and then he mentions how the pyres for the dead at night, you know, light up the sky and that it was medieval. And then he gets up and he walks past Robert. He's Robert. It was Robert covering all the kills on the butt of his uh, AK. And he says to Robert, all that hatred's going to burn you up. Robert goes back, keeps me warm. Yeah. So then you start seeing like the slip in the the psychology, you know, that the, the that's taken on at least Robert in this particular case. Yeah. And then the lieutenant colonel passes Danny looks up and goes, Colonel, are we doing right? And the colonel just keeps on walking. Yeah. <laughs> and you, yeah, I mean you can see ultimately you can see a lot of struggle in the colonel in these scenes where he's trying to figure out like, this is terrible. Everything is terrible. Like, <laughs> right. These kids are doing what they have to do, but at the same time, he doesn't want it happening to kids. You know, he's like, you're too freaking young for this. <laughs> yeah. He's also trying to, in a way, give them a look in, I think, a look into what he's experienced. Right. And what the war's been for him. I mean, for them, it's been they've been up in the mountains for a couple of months and then they started fighting people and they've killed some folks. And they've watched their parents die, right? Right. Many of them, or have at least gotten word that their parents die. And their parents died doing these operations. And the colonel is like, "Okay, you you guys just have no idea what's going on out there, right?" And like he he gave them like the kind of tactical overview, or the sorry, the strategic sort of overview of what's happened, what's happened in the war, what's happened with you guys, and now he's giving them sort of the horrors of war. Just to let them know what's going on. And to, to keep them getting cocky from overconfident and cocky about what it is that they're doing. Yeah. Because, you know, you know, he looks and he goes, there might be a time where they're faced up against odds that aren't in their favor. And these th these kids think they're invincible because that's what ultimately teenagers do is they think that they're invincible. And then success only makes them believe that that's validation of their immortality. Yeah, that's sort of what he got off a of jet earlier. Right. And the fact that their operation was just so successful. Like nobody died, everything went well, and he was just trying to say, you know, it's the war is hell and everything is, is not hunky-dory out there. Well, and especially since the attack that he saw them do wasn't against a heavy 
armed force that saw them coming or knew they were going to be there or knew that they were going to be challenged, you know? Mm-hmm. Granted, those are trained soldiers versus kids that had, you know, never shot at other human beings before, but, well, I mean, they had at that point, but realistically speaking, hadn't really been trained for what they were doing, but it wasn't exactly a hard target, as they would say, a, a target that would be of superior firepower. Right. It wasn't something that was necessarily going to be able to punch back right. the way they were hitting it or was going to be able to expect it. Like that's, the, that's always the, you know, why surprise is so awesome, <laughs> you know, as, as it lets you often destroy, you know, it's the Sun Tzu art of war. If you can get your opponent not looking, then you can kill him in his sleep and not have to worry about him killing you. Yeah. Getting punched. So, right. So then after he walks by Danny, we go, it's the next day. Colonel walks by this big piece of rock that's got names etched in it, and it's the names of the parents of our heroes here. And then the shot pans out. Erica runs into the foreground of the scene, staring at the colonel, and she holds up the boutonniere, the wildflower boutonniere that she had put in his um, flight jacket the day before. And she holds it up, and he holds his up, and then she you see her smile and run away all you know sheepish and childlike. <laughs> So clearly she is smitten with the lieutenant colonel. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that he has mentioned that he has a wife and kid that grant you that doesn't know if they're alive, but it seems to not bother her at all. <laughs> As young kids, you know, we're like, yes, but it's different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the colonel keeps walking and then there's uh, uh, Robert standing guard and like in a little crevice of a rock and my guess is like he's there keeping a watch out but it's also protecting him from the wind because he's like nestled up into that into like a crevice of the rock and uh he's like you made a friend and the colonel's like yeah she doesn't say much he goes yeah something happened to them yeah it's just more kind of you know we've talked about this banter about like revealing about you know how people are terrible things that uh probably happened to erica and tony mm-hmm. that we covered and then we move into, I'm guessing it's, yeah, December. We've now moved on into December. Snow has really set in, and the winter conditions in Colorado are mean. Yeah. <laughs> and terrible. Right. So we're moving, right, because we start in September. Right. Because the school year starts, and we've moved into, you know, through October and November, and so now December. And this is a real turn starts to come in the storyline because now that they've got the colonel with them and they're sort of, you know, he's laid out kind of the bleakness of how everything is. And, you know, they can listen to, what is it? Radio free America. Mm -hmm. They can kind of get a feel for the badness of the situation. It sort of matches the bleakness of winter in Colorado, especially (laughs) as we slowly move into it. The next part that we see after some beautiful screenshots of Colorado countryside is the colonel standing like it, at this point? It almost looks like it's like a um, like a pavilion. You know, I mean, like it, like it looks like it's got posts and a roof and <laughs> looks like a real roof and whatnot, like a yeah place that they actually sleep under, <laughs> not just tents. <laughs> right. It, it looks like they put like some work into this. Yeah. <laughs> so the colonel's like laying out this plan for all this stuff, and he's talking about all this jargon, like you know. 
you got bunkers here, tents here, machine gun, you know, placements here, you know, the prisoners are over here, you're going to do this, that, and the other thing, and then, you know, and then it all go according to plan. And he goes, are there any questions? And then <laughs> Robert holds up his hand, what's a flank? <laughs> and they all start <laughs> chiming in with questions, like, you know, because he's talking military jargon, yeah. and all of a sudden they're like, Wait, what are you talking about? What is what is this jargon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does all this mean? You know, he's... he's <laughs> It's, it's funny because he, he goes from the scenes in uh, November where he's like, you know, these are kids and they shouldn't be involved. And even though I've seen them do this operation, I'm not terribly happy with it to now he's like, all right, so if we're going to do a, a real operation, then we're going to do it right. And we're going to do these things. And they're all like, uh, we don't know what we you're talking about. <laughs> and he's like, I need a drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then the next thing you see it's nighttime and see two russians on a basically it's a cherry picker as a guard post <laughs> it's like a guard tower and then you hear in the background the soviet propaganda about you know trying to brainwash people into you know into being communists and whatnot and then uh an rpg just blows up the uh cherry picker <laughs> with the two russians on it and then it's a full combat scene i mean these guys just start running through the you know they ram a truck through the fence they start shooting people uh one guy oh i want to say it's Dar no aardvark aardvark he, he speaks to the cubans oh it's the, the wolverines they, they're here and he runs away and jumps behind like a uh machine gun turret emplacement you know then that's when you know erica just starts blowing them up <laughs> a couple of the other guys you know they run after the the pilots that are getting into their uh jet fighters and start throwing the grenades into the into the back of their jets <laughs> and it's this whole combat scene it's really kind of kind of cool like they actually carried it out like you know like they planned you know <laughs> yeah they're effectively attacking a base right it's essentially the um political prisoner camp that they saw their dad in last time the drive-in theater yeah so instead of attacking like a moving column or something which has kind of been their bread and butter this mm -hmm. whole time they're attacking like a, a full-blown installation that's probably i mean it's been set up for a long time so it has a decent amount of setup to it right you can tell like some of their operations have been sort of seemingly at this scale but not really it seems like there's a lot more communist soldiers between the cubans and the russians and whoever else is is getting shot up there there's just a lot more folks that they're you know putting in the ground right and that's that's a big part of it is sort of this escalation of of what it was you get kind of a question of like why do they pick this target well it's because you know it's where all the political prisoners are being held they think it'll do the most good well yeah because uh the truck that they used to ram through the fencing jed's on the back of it handing out ak's to to all the american prisoners you know yeah you know here take them here's your chance move move you know we're all gonna die die standing up <laughs> That's a direct quote, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a great scene. So Robert throws the grenade into the uh, air intake for one engine. And then uh, the colonel asks Robert for a grenade. And he, he, he pounds the grenade against the, the cockpit of the one Russian, pulls the pin, flips him off, and then throws him into what I can only imagine was like a an air break. It was like a like a framed piece of metal yeah like a slatted you know i don't know what you're talking about i'm trying to think of what that was if that was just cooling vents or if that was part of the whole engine setup yeah because like because it moved up and down from being flush with the cockpit behind the cockpit 
Right. Yeah. And that was, I remember this being, that being part of it, the sort of the Jets, I, I think I remember the Colonel or somebody talking about like this being important that they don't get off the ground mm-hmm. and they blow them up because this becomes a big focus of like the second act of the, not that this takes that long, like, but there's a, there's definitely a stage one where it's sort of shock and awe surprise mm-hmm. and misdirection with um, Aardvark followed by this piece of it, which is the sort of the strategic sabotage piece of it. You hit him with a truck. You, it cause a lot of chaos and confusion. You're giving guns to, you know, guys now, you know, I'm fighting an armed camp within my own camp. Uh, if you're the Russians or the, the Cubans or the Guatemalans, whoever. And, and at the same time, you've got these other guys who are kind of have their own mission within the mission, which is to blow up these planes which is good. So, you know, reducing the enemy's air superiority in the field, which would be top of mind for the colonel, right? Seeing as he was a fighter pilot. Mm-hmm. And that is the reality of war. Air superiority is one of the most important things you can have in a war theater. So destroying these planes was probably the primary objective of the colonel. He's just, he's kind of lucky that this ready-made distraction <laughs> is there in the form of the instant freedom fighter freedom fighters which is all the people who were who were being kept in in prison by the uh, by the russians right and so that's that's why there's this focus on the planes you know the one russian trying to get off the ground and him being like see you later sucker <laughs> <laughs> right because like because like as they're like making their getaway the lieutenant colonel's holding a bottle it looks like tequila but i'm assuming it's vodka and yeah. he goes, <laughs> like mocking him <laughs> yep um and then the next day there's smoke there's dead bodies being brought down and uh the colonel's like uh you know children did this <laughs> Well, actually, I think it was the general. He's like, you know, children did this more like in disbelief. And yeah. and uh, the colonel's like, it's rebels. And the general's like, what rebels? These are bandits, you know, trying to give them the no, no, no. Wasn't rebels. These were, you know, thieves. Yeah. That's all that they were. <laughs> yeah, we're not going. Uh, we're not going that far. <laughs> we're not giving them that much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the, the, the Russians shoot a bunch of prisoners in the back. They were facing a fence and. And the colonel's like, every time, you know, the, the gun, the guns go off, the revolution grows and goes, I know I was a, I was a partisan. He goes, I was, I, w- I used to be like, you know, the revolution and the general was like, oh yeah, what are you now? He goes, I'm like you, a policeman. Yeah. You know, every time we see the colonel, he's just slightly more disparaged about the situation than he was last time. Right. Like he starts out with this, this is madness and chaos and giving orders. Then, you know, I don't like to see my own med dead and now you know i'm a i'm a freaking policeman (laughs) not only that we're doing a bad job at it (laughs) so then the next scene lieutenant colonel's running through a field and football comes into play and you can just tell that you know all the guys are playing football (laughs) yeah they're beating up on this old man (laughs) maddie tackles him and he he, the colonel just doubles over in pain Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh... And then, of course, Erica comes over and goes, what you doing on the ground? <laughs> or no, she asked if he was okay. <laughs> and she's like, you know, how about I help you up? He's like, no, how about you come down here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he's just trying to be friendly, and then she thinks he's flirting, and then Maddie comes along, and he's like, hey, you guys playing, you quitters playing or what? And Erica <laughs> just shouts back at him, no! <laughs> Yeah, she's just like, shut up. <laughs> We're having a moment here. <laughs> Things are going so well. 
<laughs> Captain. <laughs> oh! <laughs> I kind of skipped over a part two. Like she asks the colonel about his wife and what she was like. <laughs> oh god, I don't know how this was supposed to work. I, I don't know why they wrote it like this. But he's like, you know, she was feisty like you, and he's like tickling her. Yeah. He was like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. Does does he talk about his wife like in the past tense? Yes, and then, you know, he's like, you know, she goes, where'd you guys meet? And he goes, uh, I met her at a party, or in a closet at a party, and I couldn't stand her at first, but once it took, you know, nothing was the same. I loved her so bad it hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and then she, Eric asks, do you still love her like that? <laughs> and that's when Maddie comes in, like, you quitters playing or what? Yeah, it, they did so many things so well in this movie. I think the whole wife and then Erica thing was the only kind of possible misstep really (laughs) but it wasn't that big of one like it wasn't a huge thing or part of the story at least not at this stage so yeah yeah that scene was a little weird well the good part was like you saw that it wasn't always about going and killing people you know that they took time to you know have fun and enjoy life that they found you know some peace and quiet somewhere where they can you know play and you know relax a little (laughs) right yeah it's it's sort of this you know, calm that happens between these storms of doing terrible things out in this field, you know, playing football, just, just having fun and kind of getting it out. And that's, I mean, that's the reality of it. Like you always see no matter what, no matter hard bitten or terrible uh, things that soldiers go through, they'll still a lot of times be able to have fun and, and do things like this kind of thing in between action, because you know, humans aren't meant to go do crazy stuff all the time. <laughs> we have to have the <laughs> recreation piece of it. And I thought it was a pretty good callback to, you know, the very opening scene, right? With the scoreboard and talking about the football. Play ball game, yeah. Yeah. And like, so there's this, you know, everything's different. Everything's changed. Nothing's the same. So the next thing we see is um, the whole gang is back at that one ranch the boys fled to after they left the gas station and where they ended up picking up Erica and Tony, all these people brought their kids. They want to give to the group to help them get across back to free America. <laughs> Jed's like, look, Mr. Mason, this is enough. I don't need more responsibility. I, <laughs> I can barely, you know, mentally handle what I got. <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of the obvious outfall of rescuing all the prisoners, right? Right. Is now they have a bunch of people who are on the lam and who ultimately need to find somewhere to go or get back to free America. Otherwise, they're just going to be recaptured and they'll probably be killed, right? Right. Mr. Mason said, hey, they've heard about you on the other side, meaning free America. And he goes, they may have heard about you all the way to California. <laughs> and he said, they just talk that they'll bring in um, special forces and to help you out in the springtime. And that's when the lieutenant colonel leans over and goes, you know, telling him, hey, like Green Berets, like real people. And he hands him a jar of clear liquid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, probably moonshine. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Jed, this is when like the adult version of him really comes out. He just looks, you know, at nothing in particular, shakes his head. He goes, spring's a long time away. It's all just promises until then. And that's where, you know. Despite how he he acts, he realizes that any sort of help that they're talking about in the springtime is is just way too far along for him to think if he's even going to live, you know? Yeah. After that, next scene to the next month of January. Moving pretty quickly at this point. Um, We're starting to hit more action scenes and whatnot. 
it leads straight into action. You see uh, tanks rolling and explosions and whatnot. And uh, a group of heroes are uh, now clad in like white snowsuits, making their way across uh, basically a prairie. It's not quite a desert. It's like a sparsely forested prairie planted with trees. Uh, you know, they're looking on at the battlefield. They're not in it. They're looking at uh, the battlefield from a distance with the tanks rolling, the jets coming in. You know, they're all speculating, oh, the tanks ours? Are they ours? Are the the jets ours? And just like, how can you tell? And the colonel's like, it's ours. <laughs> You're just watching it all unfold. The jet blowing up tanks. Jed says to the lieutenant colonel, goes, so this is it, huh? The front line. And the colonel's like, yep, it's here every day. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he goes, you know, you don't have to do this anymore. You know, you can give up now. There'd be no shame in it. Oh, that's what he goes. You got to cross that? And I was like, just part of it. Because they're going to get supplies, like an airdrop. They were told of an airdrop. And the colonel tells him that, you know, why don't you come with me? You can quit now. You don't have to keep on fighting. And Jed looks back at him and goes, could you? <laughs> yeah don't give me that crap you know and that's when you know the the adult conversation really happens between the two adults you know because the colonel knows if he can get through to jed then the rest will follow because jed's the leader right he's trying to tell him goes look man this this isn't a game anymore this is war this is real war it's only going to get worse for you because you know you've done so well yeah just come with me and get out now we've done our part we've done it all get out now so we can all live you know and grow old so this is where sort of like you realize what's going on here. Like they're at the front lines and you're like, oh, they're repatriating the colonel, right? They're trying to move him across the line. Right. And now he's making the bid with them. No, no, you you guys should come with me because you're either not going to last on your side of the ball or things are going to get worse because you're doing well. And the spring is a long time away. Like they talked about the Green Berets coming or, you know, special forces or whatever. You know, the colonel's like, I don't want you guys to die, (laughs) more or less. And I think you should come with me. And there's a lot of basically kind of hemming and hawing on that because they don't want to feel like quitters. You know, that's what he's afraid that if he leaves, they'll be seen as quitters or cowards, you know, especially Jed and his brother Matt, because of the way that their father raised him. You know, the, the tough guy, you know, you don't leave a job unfinished. You don't run away from a fight, that whole thing. And that's part of it, I think. There's also a part of, like, I don't want to abandon my home. Right. And that's sort of two-staged. I don't want to abandon, like, the people who are living in the place that was my home. And at the same time, we've built this thing that, you know, the Wolverines. we built the Wolverines, and I don't want to leave that either. Like, that's become home. That's become my normal. Like, and that's the first new normal that these kids have ever had to experience. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, everybody goes through stages in life where they have to go to new normals. And sometimes it's forced on them. Like their parent, your parents move or something happens and you change locations, you change houses, you go away to college, stuff in your life changes. And so you move from one normal to a new normal. And it's always traumatic in some way. There's always a little bit of trauma or issue with going from one normal to a new normal especially if it's a sprung on you all of a sudden. So there's always a lot of hesitancy towards that. And so that's part of it too. Like we don't want to be quitters. You know, we think we're doing good work. We don't want to abandon the people at home. And like, we have our place like this being Wolverines is, is us. And I don't want to abandon that identity. Right. And so they're sort of fighting with the Colonel on that one. And then all of a sudden, surprise, there's a Russian tank rolling up on them from behind. <laughs> And now they're scrambling to hide to find a place to hide. 
it doesn't seem like it's found them at first, but they're standing or they're hiding right near the tank as it's firing on the other tanks. <laughs> so it's like being near a cannon barrage, you know, constantly firing and you're so close and it's so loud. And, <laughs> and then a second tank rolls up from another angle. So you're like, oh, crap, what if they see us? <laughs> And so now they're all panicked. <laughs> all the kids are panicked at any rate. And the you know, and the, the one kid, uh um Aardvark, you know, he's like, you know, he's like panicking and you know, wanting to, to run and you know, you know, I can't stand it. And the colonel's like, you know, trying to jump on him, tell him to stay down, stay down. <laughs> they go to try to make a, a run for it. Uh or no, the colonel gets up because he's gonna throw a grenade into the tank. And that's when uh, Aardvark, you know, is like, Colonel, I'm coming with you. You know, like he's going to run after him like he feels safest with him. Yeah. And, and you know, he's like, yo, I'm coming with you. And one of the Russians from the other tank sees him on, on the machine gun tour and starts shooting. You know, it's this big fight back and forth. And Aardvark gets shot. And then the Colonel gets shot. But the Colonel still ends up putting a, a grenade in the tank. And then as the colonel's shot, he uh, pops a, a, a smoke grenade. So that way that the uh, other American tanks can range the target and find it where it is. Colonel's yelling at the kids to get the hell out of here. You know, run, run. You know, and kids start running away. And the colonel says, uh, in a very typical Air Force versus Army kind of way, you know, shoot straight for once, you Army pukes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's trying to give the the tank a clear shot at something to shoot at, which also incidentally makes everybody around them a target. <laughs> right. It's interesting because the tank kind of just sort of settles the argument by showing up. It's sort of everything after that point. It sobers them up. Well, I, I, I mean, they're having that, you know, come with me. Uh -huh. And then the tank shows up and they're like, oh, crap. <laughs> Look, we, we have to do something now. And the colonel's like, okay, I'm going to try and take the tank out. And everything sort of just goes sideways from there. Right. Our heroes kind of, you know, escape with their lives. You know, a couple of members uh, less than they had before. Their numbers a couple fewer than before. You see that uh, Erica's, you know, crying all on her own. And Robert comes over to console her. Or Danny comes over to console her. And she says, I'm never going to love anyone ever again. E ever again. He goes, well, if you didn't love anybody, then you'd never even be here. And she falls into his arms. And there's that, you know, sad moment of crying. And then there's this uh, very somber scene of them burying Aardvark and the lieutenant colonel. Yeah. Where uh, Danny is doing basically the eulogy. He's acting like as the preacher, the chaplain of the group. Says, you know, Lord, please take them away to some place where this will never, uh, they'll never feel the pain from this ever again. And that, you know, they'll be little again, like when they were children. This is sort of the turning point. Like it's slowly been turning from this sort of exuberant, you know, we're the good guys and we're winning and we're fighting and we're doing all these things and it's amazing. But they never had consequences. Right. And with the addition of the colonel kind of pointing out to them, you know, Terrible stuff is going on out there, and, you know, this isn't going to last forever. And then this is the first real dose of it. Like, the colonel dies, and Aardvark dies, which is somewhat surprising. It is definitely surprising to everybody involved. And they're all trying to process this and deal with it. And it's, you know, this is where the movie sort of, you had the rise, rising, 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 you know, of the Wolverines. 
And this is kind of the we've we've run across the pinnacle, which was their raid on the internment camp and blowing up the planes. And now we're sort of we're we've passed the top and we're coming on the way down. And uh, the colonel didn't make it back to Free America, and now Aardvarks died too. It's a very, very real version of how these things typically go. Because mm. you don't have these kinds of cells of people last typically very long because they're always outmatched or outgunned and they're out-resourced and they can only make it for so long. And one defeat really demoralizes them. Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, and in per se, this wasn't a defeat, but the victory came at a cost, which, depending on the cost, could be seen as a defeat. Yep. So, yeah, we move into so the more sad portion of this story. Really the final chapter. Yeah. You know, there was survivalist chapter. There was the, you know, kind of Wolverines and Wolverines triumphant sort of chapter. And now we're going to move into the war is hell. <laughs> yeah. Which, again, kudos to the directors, right? Because especially movies nowadays, you have to have some sort of triumphant ending or triumphal ending or or, you know, good has to triumph. And the reality of the, you know, the real world's not like that, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and this fits very well into kind of the 80s, 70s, 80s trope of showing something that was more real. You know, we like our stories to have triumphant endings because, you know, the real world does kind of suck sometimes. And we do like having that in sort of the world of the movies. But it's also nice to see more realistic stuff portrayed. And uh, that's where we're moving into with this film. again. Don't know how much the directors lucked into this stuff or how much they just, you know, they planned out. But this feels very much like they did a good job. I assume in these kind of situations, there's always a possibility of rewriting a story as you go or rewriting the story after you get the script because you don't like the ending. Um, And and they didn't do that. Like, we're going to move into the part and it's going to be very much war as hell. So that is this episode of Run Dawn. (laughs) <laughs> it's a little longer than the last episode we appreciate it uh you sticking with us we probably got one more installment we're looking down at the end of like the last half hour or so so one maybe two more parts to this but we're finally coming close to the end of this yeah if i had to throw out i'm thinking two because the last especially the last 10 minutes of the movie there's a lot there because <laughs> pat's not done telling you why communism is bad <laughs> uh, we're, we're already past that communism is bad everybody knows it <laughs> <laughs> oh come on pat you know you got more in you <laughs> i mean sure i can always badmouth communism <laughs> real communism not not that fake stuff stuff that actually happens in real life that communism that's terrible <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah thanks for listening to us we appreciate it uh we appreciate your listenership and we appreciate we appreciate your patronage for those four patrons out there who uh do supply us with some amount of funding for this and for our editor we thank you very much we would love to thank you too if you would like to become our patrons we're on patreon if you go to the website pat and the fat and click on the become a patron button on the right hand side it'll take you to the patreon and we will gladly take your money and hand it over to our editor (laughs) because we are not at the break-even point we use personal funds to pay our editor if you like what we do and you want to support it we would appreciate it even if it's you know a dollar a show we'll we'll take that we'll take less than that Bring down communism by subscribing as a Patreon. <laughs> That's right. Fight communism. <laughs> Show your true American spirit by giving us money. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, it felt dirty. I don't know if I want to say that again. <laughs> it's American. Of course it felt dirty. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. <laughs> so, but either way, patthefatman.com. We're on Facebook, Pat the Fat Man page. I believe the Fat Man has a Twitter handle now. Yes. Yeah, check us out. Highly rate our podcast. We have noticed that there do seem to be more iTunes listeners. And so if anybody wants to rate us on the iTunes or on whatever whatever you listen to, Spotify, Amazon Music, there's a whole slew of others. Whatever you're on, if there's a rating system, please rate us. Uh, and I would hope we get highly rated uh, because then the algorithm will give us to other people. So we, uh, But we do appreciate you all, listeners. And feel free to go to our website and give us feedback. We like that, too. So I'm Pat. I'm the fat man. Stay classy. Wolverines. So it does kind of look like it's picking up the audio from the computer. Oh, whoa. I can hear you a lot louder now. Okay. So it is using the mic on my headset. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You put that down and it was like the volume shot up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, sorry, Shay. (laughs) Well, Shay hasn't complained. So Shay, if you want to complain, let us know. (laughs) Oh, I have some words.